good to be back with you all this week as we continue in the book of Ruth. We're continuing this little story that we've said last week was often framed as the Bible's contribution to the world's great romances, right? Specifically, this love story between Ruth and Boaz. But we insisted last week that it's actually much better understood as a God-sized love story, a powerful contribution to the much larger narrative of Scripture, a narrative that tells us about God's love for a fallen humanity and his gracious work to redeem us and bring wholeness through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And last time in Ruth 1, we saw that that contribution starts with a woman named Naomi who suddenly finds herself in the absolute worst of times, having become a sojourning, sonless widow, seemingly destined for destitution. We saw how in the worst of times, in those darkest of hours, God's people must fight to see God as our advocate and not our adversary. And we saw that part of how we fight amidst that is by looking for glimmers of hope that God sovereignly brings about amidst uh, those hard times. Now, for Naomi, those glimmers of hope came in the news that God had brought the famine which forced her family into exile to an end. And and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, despite all the reasons she had to return to Moab, clung to Naomi and swore an oath never to leave her side. But at the end of chapter 1, those glimmers of hope are, are not even close to being noticed by Naomi who is still reaping the whirlwind. And and we should be reminded that what we're given in Ruth is a story about the reality of God's providence that begins in the midst of crippling calamity and sorrow. There's no getting around that. And though ultimately we're going to see in the very last chapter how in all this chaos and hurt, God was at work preparing the way for his coming son, the truth is we're not there yet. Naomi certainly is not there yet. For Naomi, the story's main character, we are still barely back in Bethlehem, a place that was painfully full of reminders of yesteryear, a past life of hope and happiness as a wife and mother of two sons who were her glory, now completely gone. The beginning of chapter 2, we're still dealing with a Naomi whose dream has been crushed, whose eyes are bleary from unending sorrow whose perspective on God is that he is against her, that he has afflicted her, that he has brought only misfortune upon her, and that he has exchanged her fullness for emptiness, her pleasantness for bitterness, her life for death. We have to remember as we keep reading this story that where we begin today, Naomi thinks the fog will never lift. She thinks that the clouds will never park, that the curse will never be broken. She thinks that the Lord only has a very bitter providence for her. And it's in the midst of this utter despair that we hear the word that comes to us today in chapter 2, which is that we can trust the Lord to provide for us in our greatest time of need according to his pleasant providence. Let me say that again. We can trust the Lord to provide for us in our time of greatest need according to his pleasant providence. Now, just as we get started, let me just remind us that providence, what we mean by that is the teaching found in Scripture 
which says that God is at every single moment intimately involved with the world, sustaining, caring for it, governing it in each and every detail of what transpires so that it accomplishes the purpose he intended for it before the dawn of creation. Okay? And so we're going to see today the Lord's pleasant providence in three scenes you're going to find in your outline. Over Ruth's initiative in verses 1 to 3, over Boaz's generosity in verses 4 to 16, and finally over Naomi's revival in verses 17 to 23. Okay, that's where we're going today. So let's jump in by looking first at God's pleasant providence over Ruth's initiative in verses 1 to 3. Let's read those verses again. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Okay, so at the beginning of this first scene, we have another character introduced, and his name is Boaz. Okay, what a name, huh? Boaz. Anybody looking for baby names? I think this is in the running, anyways. Well, we end up learning quite a bit about this man from just one verse here. Okay, first we learn he's the relative of Elimelech, who you'll recall is Naomi's deceased husband. Okay, so he's kin, and that that becomes very important as the book progresses. But beyond that, we also learn that he is, as the ESV says here, a worthy man. Other translations are helpful to bring out the nuances of the Hebrew here. They offer things like, he's a man of valor, he's a man of standing, he's a worthy man, he's a prominent rich man, he's a mighty man, an influential man, a well-to-do man, a man of substance. You get the idea. Okay, in short, we learn that Boaz here, he's wealthy, he's worthy, and he's family. And all those things will become important as we see the story progress. Now, the story goes on with Ruth the Moabite being faithful to her sworn promise to her mother-in-law, Naomi, taking initiative, asking permission to head out into the fields of Bethlehem for the day to see what she can glean to provide for the two of them. And here we just continue to see Ruth's admirable character on display. I mean, it already began in chapter 1 with this undying loyalty to a mother-in-law who was certainly no asset to her and her profession of faith in the God of Israel equal to Abraham's. But now, added to these is an initiative that seeks to put her words into action. See, Ruth is a woman of action. She knows the situation, which is that neither she nor Naomi have a man to provide for them and protect them in a man's world. That was how it was in that day. And so what does she do? She takes the initiative and essentially says to Naomi, knowing she's too defeated to put up much of a fight, that she's heading out to gather grain in any field where she can find favor. Now I guarantee you that this was not the plan that Ruth had for her life right? This is not her dream coming true here, is it? Being a widow who was desperately gleaning for her mother-in-law in in a foreign land where she was vulnerable in so many ways was not exactly the life she had dreamed of. I mean, isn't this text instructive for any of us who have felt at any time like our dream was deferred? 
that our life had gotten undeniably off the tracks into a ditch somewhere. This week, in considering this story, I ended up thinking about our former lead pastor here at EBF, Jason Lancaster. For those of you who were new and have come since he left, uh, I I would say he, he was a very gifted preacher, a wise, faithful shepherd, happily married man with not one, not two, not three, all the way up to seven kids, okay, three of which were adopted. Okay, just a passionate guy and a wonderful family. Now, do you want to know how this man, who ended up in, in such a life-giving place and is being used by God in so many ways, do you want to know how he spent his 20s, which many people would say is the prime of your life? He spent it every single day caring for his elderly grandmother because the rest of his family had essentially abandoned her. I mean, can't you just imagine him in that room with his bedridden grandmother, looking out the window at his friends driving by in their pickup truck, going out to some adventure, going out on a date, whatever it might be? It was not the life he dreamed of, I bet. And yet, he was faithful with God, what God put in front of him. And he took initiative, and he did what needed to be done, as mundane as it was. And only now, in this season of his life and ministry, to a largely retired community in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, is he beginning to see how the Lord was at work and what he was ultimately preparing him for. See, he couldn't have known that back then, in his 20s. Well, at this point in our story, Ruth is where our former pastor was back in his 20s, do you see? She's taking initiative and going out and doing the mundane but extremely valuable work of providing for her vulnerable family. Not her dream world, but rather the real world that she knows she's called to faithfully act within, glamour or not. I have to say, I think there's an application point here already for us, and it's this. We need to ask where we might be rebuked by Ruth's initiative, by her work ethic, that after all she had been through causes her to jump out of bed and seize the day for the sake of another without complaint and without a second thought, it seems. And guys, men in the room, I want to speak to you a little more bluntly for a second. See, part of what we have in this book that we're going to see throughout are some competent, capable women in Naomi and Ruth. They take initiative. They work hard. They care for each other in productive ways. And all this because they must as women in a man's world. They do for each other what everyone in that day presumed that the men of the house would have done had they still been there. And guys, in watching these women who step up and do something, how much more should we then be men who take initiative in marriage, in family, in work, in church, in community, in all of life? I mean, don't get me wrong. Initiative is not a male-only attribute. Ruth is the great rebuttal to that idea. But I believe it is something that defines what it means to be a man biblically. And, and quite honestly, Ruth and women like her end up schooling us and actually are given to us as an example and and in some ways as a rebuke for us to hear and take to heart, if we will. Men, we need to let Ruth's initiative be a spur and a rebuke to us that when the Lord has called us 
perhaps into a situation where we'd prefer not to be in or that we didn't envision ourselves being a part of, that's not as glamorous or as lucrative as we'd hoped. We're called not to pout or throw in the towel, but to, to faithfully act, to do something. Right? And when we do that, what we find is that God's pleasant providence goes before us, graciously and powerfully superintending our actions and initiative toward his perfect end. Where we see in verse, thir- uh, verse 3, where is it that Ruth finds herself after Naomi ascents? She ends up in the field belonging to none other than Boaz. Hmm, interesting. Imagine that. As the ESV says, she just happened to come to the field of their relative, of all the fields in Bethlehem. The NIV says, as it turned out, she ended up in Boaz's field. Now, what are the odds, do you think? You see, I agree with many of those who've studied this text that when they say that we should hear in these words the narrator speaking with a knowing wink here, as in, Ruth just so happened to end up in Boaz's field of all the fields, wink, wink. The narrator wants us to reflect on the fact that those quote-unquote chance events are actually, when we step back and see the big picture, not chance events at all but actually the providential work of God, which in this instance was bringing about a pleasant circumstance through Ruth's initiative that Ruth and Naomi never could have planned in a million years, but God could easily, and he did. What the world knows as fate or fortune or luck or chance, we rightly call providence. Not because it's a holier word, but because it better expresses the reality of the world. There is no such thing as luck or chance in the biblical worldview because God's providence governs all things, all the way down to the hiccups of an ant. Nothing happens apart from his hand, do you see? What appear to us on the ground to be good luck or chance events, like a man winning the lotto against all odds, are actually just times that we're particularly attuned to providential happenings that are going on all the same every minute of every day. Listen to what J.I. Packer says in this regard. He says, The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. He says, All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes Listen, as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. Now, we know we can't jump immediately to that, right? There's, there's things we have to unpack in that. But ultimately, we have to arrive at that understanding and reality of the world and of our lives. That's what we have here in verses 1 through 3, and that's what we continue to see as we move on to verses 4 to 16, seeing a pleasant providence over Boaz's generosity. Now, I'm not going to reread those verses here, but I want, I want your eyes to be on the text as we look at some significant details in scene 2. One of them is another fortuitous circumstance. For wouldn't you know it, Boaz just happens to be arriving at his field at exactly the right moment for the following encounter to unfold. 
And upon his timely arrival, we learn even more about this mystery man. For we find him greeting the harvesters as he arrives. The Lord be with you. And the harvesters call right back. The Lord bless you. And what could seem to us as mere pleasantries or perhaps the facade of good worker relations is actually much, much more. This is not, I think, mere Christianese. This is not religious talk that just sounds good, but really, at the end of the day, it's just talk. This is, in fact, the greeting of what we're going to learn is a God-saturated man. A man who knows the greatest thing he can give his workers is a prayer asking the Lord to be truly with them. This is a man who invites Yahweh into all of life, every arena, including work out in the field. And we learn from the workers' reply that they are men and women, as we'll see, who want to bless rather than curse their boss. Just more than can be said for many workplaces in that day and, unfortunately, in our own, right? Now, this is not a throwaway conversation. This is not reporting the mere formality of a nice greeting. This is significant speech from a character the narrator wants us to see is a godly man, full of faith, who loves the Lord and wants to obey him in all of life. And this man on this day finds in his field a peculiar scene that he immediately asks the overseer of his workers about, and and like a, a pitcher and catcher conferring in low tones and covered lips on the baseball mound, they they discuss Ruth just out of her earshot. Boaz wants to know who this young woman belongs to, not because of an immediate attraction to her as the teen glam versions of the story would have it, but because she's a Moabite woman, very clearly a stranger in a strange land, in his field without his awareness up to that point, right? That's what's going on. And in the conversation we learn that Ruth has asked permission to glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters, okay? Now, that probably doesn't strike you as anything odd, right? I mean, to the unaccustomed ear, that that sounds like a pretty typical request. But actually, when we learn the normal practices of the day, we see how bold and how proactive Ruth is being to seeking to provide for Naomi here. First of all, we need to take a step back and understand that in in Israel, God's people, at least those who were desiring to be covenantly faithful, sought to live in obedience to the law given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the law had quite a bit to say about how the vulnerable within the land were to be treated, especially the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor. The law provided protective measures for them as image bearers of God himself, a God who made it abundantly clear he cared for these people who in many ways in that day were unable to care for themselves. And where that gets relevant for us here is that there were certain practices that landowners and farmers had to observe in order to be in alignment with God and his law, such as the command we find in Leviticus 19, 9-10 which says that when the, law, uh, when the land was being harvested, farmers were not allowed to reap up to the very edges of their field or gather the gleanings of the harvest, the things that fell along the side, or pick up the grapes that had fallen to the ground. 
Why not? The Lord is absolutely clear that they were to be left for the poor and the foreigner. That those people, that they might come in and glean and receive from the Lord the provision he had made for them among his people. Okay, so typically what would happen if someone like Boaz was seeking to obey these laws was that they would hire men who would first come in with a sickle, cut the stalks of grain, and they'd lay them down for a group of hired women to come in behind and bind them into bundles to be carted over to the threshing floor where the edible kernels were separated from the husk, right? That was the normal procedure. And then gleaners, including people like Naomi and Ruth, right, the poor, were permitted in the field only after both of these hired worker teams had finished and the bundled grain was completely removed from the field. Are you tracking? But you see, what Ruth is asking for here in verse 7 is more than these gleaning laws allowed for. Requesting simply to be able to glean in Boaz's field would be like if I asked a police officer if it would be okay to use the public restrooms along the interstate. Right? I don't need his permission to do that, I hope. <laughs> but Ruth, see, Ruth is requesting much more. She's asking to break protocol here by being allowed to glean directly behind the harvesters, where gleaners were not normally permitted. She's essentially asking to be given special access at the head of the line getting in way before any other gleaner can get their hands on any of Boaz's leftovers. And so the big question for us as we're reading this text should be, how is Boaz going to respond to such a bold and outrageous request? The original audience knew that Ruth is way out of line here. She's going big or going home in her approach. And the truth is, Boaz would have been completely within his rights as a a land-owning covenant keeper to say absolutely not to what Ruth was seeking. So how does he respond? Well, I think we could say and summarize his response as abundant generosity. Starting in verses 8 and 9, we see it in Boaz's initial response to her. Rather than run her and her ludicrous request right off the field, he responds very tenderly to her calling her my daughter, and inviting her to bring her search for a field in which to find favor to an end. This would have been extremely uh, wonderful grace to any gleaner, much less a foreigner, a Moabite woman who would have already been viewed very suspiciously by those around him at this point. Okay, and verse 9 continues the generosity with additional provisions. One's protection something the landowner alone could offer. In this case, he's used his employer status to bring a hedge of protection around a very vulnerable woman, instructing the men specifically not to touch her, that is, not to harass her. And unfortunately, this was necessary not only because of the stereotypical construction scene dynamics of a bunch of guys and a woman walking by, but also because, as we've learned, Ruth is breaking protocol here. Right? The men and the women may have looked on and said, hey, lady, that's not how we do things here. Okay? Go back to your own land, your own gods. Something like that. And Boaz is now willing to be the enforcer and stand up for her to make sure these things don't happen. 
But also, Boaz gives her full access to the jars of water that have been filled up to replenish the workers in the sweltering heat. And this is generous because, see, the normal protocol for drawing water is completely reversed here. Normally, the lower you were on the social hierarchy, the more likely you were the one drawing the water. So foreigners would draw for Israelites. Women would draw water for men. Poor men would draw for more wealthy men. Well, here the water jars that have been filled by men have been made available to a foreign woman. And what's Ruth's response to all this abundant generosity? We see it in her reply to Boaz in verse 10 and verse 13. In short, she's humbled, incredibly thankful for this absolutely unheard of provision and protection. She bows to the ground, demonstrating humble thanksgiving, asking that she continue to find favor in the eyes of this abundantly generous man, insisting she's not worthy of the comfort and kind words that he's spoken. And in asking why she has found such favor, Boaz gives us even more important information. Look again at verses 11 to 12. Boaz says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So we learn that Boaz has indeed heard about Ruth and her radical act of faith and love toward Naomi. He knows she has sacrificed much, becoming a vulnerable woman, so that she might care for a vulnerable woman. And in verse 12, we have one of the most important verses in the entire book, a blessing uttered by Boaz, in which he once again invokes the Lord to come and bless, to repay Ruth for the good she's done and the sacrifices she's made. He asks that she be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then this very significant line, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That is a summary of what Ruth, in leaving Moab and coming to Israel, has done. Taking refuge in the Lord and finding her provision and protection most ultimately in him, not in another husband. Boaz shows favor to Ruth, not because Boaz has experienced a sudden infatuation with her, but because he has seen how she has loved out of a generous, compassionate heart, and he wants to repay her in kind. At this point, what the author wants us to notice is not Boaz's wealth or stature or eligible bachelor status, but rather his sterling character. For along with wealth, rank, and power, he's presented to us as a man of valor, as a champion of sorts who loves to be generous and compassionate in the same way that Ruth has been. And in verses 14 to 16, Boaz just continues to pour on the generosity. It goes from, you know, good to overflowing. In a mini scene that's a little humorous, Boaz bends over backward to make sure Ruth is protected and provided for. He invites her to the noontime meal, which breaks all sorts of barriers, by the way. In a mini scene here, she we end up finding that a foreigner and a gleaner eats at the table with paid harvesters, which was just outrageous in that day. She's invited to what must have felt like a feast to her at the time. 
And indeed, I agree with one scholar who says there's a powerful preview of the gospel portrayed in the scene here. She says, we have a gleaner seated alongside paid workers, a Moabitess dining with Israelites, a man serving a woman, the poor included among the rich, an outsider embraced by the inner circle. Looks like the kind of feasting Jesus would have enjoyed. Absolutely. And after this sensibility-smashing lunch, Boaz gives his men another reminder to let her gather among the sheaves these bundles of grain. Don't rebuke her for what's doing way out of the norm. And by the end, we, we get this picture of Boaz as a man almost obsessed with meeting Ruth's need, going above and beyond her ludicrous request. It's like Boaz grabs the men on their way back out of the field almost frantic and and adds that they should not only let her glean, but actually go ahead and pull out some stalks from the bundles just for her. This Moabite sojourner set out to find a field in which she could find some favor. A tall order for anyone, much less a foreigner in that day. By the end of this section, she has found it in spades in Boaz. He has been more generous with her than she could possibly have hoped or imagined. And it's a picture for us of kingdom generosity. Boaz not only observes the law of God, you see, he goes above and beyond what it calls for because he understands God's heart for the vulnerable and the marginalized. He not only knew the law and followed it, he also loved the law and the God of mercy behind it, even at personal cost. I mean, there's, there's so many points of reflection and application for us here and, and so little time, but just for starters, I think we need to ask how Boaz's generosity as a response to the pleasant providence of God ought to challenge us and particularly ought to challenge our sense of, you know, well, hey, I work hard for me and my family and maybe my church community, but that's it. That's where I draw the line. No. <laughs> We're called, like Boaz, to see how God's generosity to us might lead us to be generous with the most vulnerable people within our society and around the world. It must. It must lead us to that ultimate place. His actions must call us to reflect on the ways that we use the power and influence and wealth that the Lord has given to us. For instance by asking ourselves whether we treat the folks who work under us with dignity and respect, calling upon God to bless them in their work, or do we at best ignore them or at worst exploit them? Do we look for opportunities to go above and beyond what the law and our customs and even the expectations of a church like ours would require, seeking to be as generous as possible? even at personal cost, to those who stand in need. That's what the text is laying out before us if we would have ears to hear it. There's so much more we could say, but we have to move on much more briefly to look finally at a pleasant providence over Naomi's revival, verses 17 to 23. Here we're told that Ruth is able to glean with very special privileges until evening, and what do we find is the fruit of only one day's labor? An ephah. Now, for those of you who might be a little rusty in your ancient world measurements, 
That's on the level of around 29 pounds of grain, which I think is still in the Guinness Book of World Records for one person's most productive day on the farm ever. I mean, this is an enormous amount of bacon that she is bringing home, especially as a gleaner, quote-unquote, right? The reality is the amount of food Ruth is bringing to Naomi is much more in keeping with a hired worker and probably put the men who were working alongside of her to shame that day. That's what's kind of going on. And the startling quantity is a testament both to Ruth's industry, but also to Boaz's generosity, right? I mean, he sets her up to bring home this abundant provision for them both, right? And so imagine the scene as Ruth hauls in this huge, huge sack of grain, And Naomi watches her come through the door. She knows immediately the famine is over. Not just for Israel, but for them personally. As if that was enough, after Ruth puts the sack down, she pulls out of her pockets the leftovers of the roasted grain from lunch, which was like the McDonald's of the ancient world. This was food ready to eat at any time. Naomi doesn't even have to wait for the grain that Ruth has been brought home to be prepared and cooked, the feast has already begun, do you see? And so, as we can imagine, Naomi wants to know the scoop, right? Where on earth could she have found this much favor? Where did she work and whose favor did she find to bring home this kind of mother load? And of course, we already know the answer. Ruth shares very casually, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz, and then wham, it hits Naomi like a ton of bricks. Boaz, Boaz, of course, how could I have forgotten about Boaz? He's one of our closest relatives. In fact, he's one of our guardian or kinsman redeemers. Now, in the next two chapters, we're going to see more what that means. But suffice to say, at this point, it's a very good thing. Noticing Naomi's upbeat tempo, which we must recall we haven't seen in a very long time, Ruth adds in that Boaz has given her permission to stay with her workers through the end of the harvest. Translation, they can rest easy, knowing that there will be food on the table after all. And all this because, as Naomi puts in a very important verse, verse 20, he has not stopped showing kindness, or has said, to the living and the dead. Now, it's interesting because the Hebrew text is actually ambiguous about who the subject of this has said is. Is it the Lord who has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead? That is, to Naomi and Ruth, but also to their husbands and sons? Or is it Boaz that Naomi's referring to here? Different translations bring out different nuances, but I think it's important to see that both Boaz and Yahweh have shown his said that his compassionate loyalty and kindness, and in this case, the two widows in the most desperate of straits, in keeping with the law and what God intended and desired for his people. Only here at the very end of chapter 2 do we get a sense that the fog might be lifting for Naomi, that the clouds of doubt and despair may be just beginning to scatter. Only here do we have a sense that a revival may be possible for Naomi because the Lord's providence has turned from being very bitter to being abundantly pleasant. Because the truth is, not in their wildest dreams 
Could these two dirt-poor widows have hoped for such abundant provision, especially without a husband? It was mind-blowing to them. And if we really understood the desperate straits they were in, it would be mind-blowing to us too. By the end of chapter 2, each of the characters has experienced a pleasant providence, a fresh wind from God to revive and provide. Through Ruth's initiative and Boaz's generosity, Naomi is beginning to experience a revival by God's gracious providential work and care. The God who is the defender of the orphan and the widow has acted. And I hope we have seen that we as God's people then, all of us, no matter where we are in life, can provide, will provide for us in our time of greatest need according to his pleasant providence. This isn't just a story we go back and read and go, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that interesting? It's about us. It tells us about us, where we are in the story, how we're a part of the story as well. Because indeed, we know that God has already ordained that his son, a man of stature and wealth and influence unimaginable, laid aside his prerogatives in order to give generously to utterly needy, destitute people like you and me. That's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. We get a picture of that, don't you see here? We get a glimpse of that in Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. God has already ordained in his gracious, pleasant providence that there be a redeemer for us who will provide for us all that we need and more. Let's remember that we can trust him no matter what sort of providence we face, no matter what sort of providence you face right now, whether exceedingly bitter or abundantly pleasant. We can be assured because of Christ, that over the course of our Christian lives, we will indeed encounter both. But the Lord is sovereignly reigning over every intimate detail of our lives for our good and for his glory. Let's pray for greater faith to believe that and trust him in that. Once again, Heavenly Father, we are in awe of what you have been doing in the world since its creation and since the fall of human rebels like us to redeem a people, to call a people of hopeless sinners back into communion with you and, and with one another. We give you thanks and praise for the wonderful plan of salvation you have executed in your Son by the Spirit for us and for our salvation. And we thank you especially for his abundant gospel generosity. Christ, who was so rich beyond measure, becoming poor that we might become rich. We give you thanks and praise for that, and we pray for hearts that would grow in our trust of you no matter what providence we are facing in our lives, that we would indeed look to you and entrust ourselves to you each day because of Christ. 
In his mighty name we pray these things. Amen.